0: matt kerber i'm a pastor at city reform we're dismissing our children for children's church Uh, now in uh, the weeks leading up to uh, to easter we're going to be doing a series of sermons as we think about the resurrection of jesus that's the great theme of easter and uh, following that we'll move back into another book of the bible and plow along through the summer Um, But we're going to look at uh, really key Bible passages that think of some of these big, important themes. Um, So today we'll be looking at Paul's letter to the Corinthians, his first letter, 1 Corinthians 15. Look at verses 1 and 10 and talk about how the resurrection is central to our understanding of Christianity, central to our hope. I'll read the passage and then we'll affirm together it's God's word. 1 Corinthians 15. Because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. This is the word of the Lord. Paul says in this passage that there are things of first importance. And what I take that to mean is that he would understand there are many important things, but there's something, some things that are on the top of the list. There are a lot of things you don't want to forget, but there are items that could be considered of first importance, the biggies, the ones that you don't want to lose. I um, have many lists in my life because I'm prone to forget nearly everything at one time or another. I tend to be very focused on the thing that I'm doing, but I lose track of everything else that goes on around me. Uh, One of the times it's important to have a list for me is if I'm going on a bike ride somewhere where I have to drive in my car. Between the time I leave the house and I actually get all my stuff together, a lot of stuff, a lot of important stuff can be forgotten. Uh, A mountain bike ride requires a lot of extra gear, helmet, gloves, special shoes that fit in, water bottle, extra food, extra tire. And I have been on bike rides where I've forgotten all of those things at various times before. And if you saw me on a mountain bike ride, I might be riding in jeans, uh, uh, with no water bottle and just mooching off the people around me. So I've learned to keep lists, lists of things. When I leave the house, I go through the mental list. When I, when I go somewhere uh, where, you know, I'm not exercising, I'll, I usually check phone, keys, wallet. Phone, keys, wallet. Okay, I got that stuff. I'm going forward. On a bike ride, however, I've learned that I can ride without a lot of stuff, but there is an item of first importance. That is the bike. If you end up on a bike ride with no bike, there is no bike ride. It is an item of absolute first importance on the top of the list. And you have to check several times in the back of the car as you're pulling out to make sure it's there. If you're a parent, you know there are items of first importance all the time. Uh, if you have young children, you leave the, before you leave the house, you're thinking diapers, wipes, snacks, books, something to entertain them if we're sitting for too long. But you know there's also an item of first importance for parents, right? That's your kids. If you leave without your kids, you realize it's all it's all going to pot. So, yes, that has happened to me as well. A famous story in the Kerber family is a time several years ago. We were uh, staying in the woods on a winter weekend. We were all getting ready to go on a winter hike as the family. We had gone through our list. We had, you know, done hats, snow pants, you know, you know, big jackets, you know, the kids could barely move, uh, they were, we were thinking about that, something for the dog, extra snacks and things, and as we pulled out in the car, someone suddenly yelled, where's Stella? <laughs> and I looked in the rearview mirror, and there was little Stella, moving as best she could in her snowsuit, trying to follow the car down the snowy driveway. <laughs> And it was a moment where you thought, I just thought I've completely failed as a parent. You know, it doesn't get any worse than this. And I did ask Stella's permission to tell that story. So since then, we've been more careful with our lists, And I'm happy to report we've not yet pulled out without any children since that terrible moment. Well, Paul, the Apostle Paul, had a lot of stuff he could teach. In fact, one story in the book of Acts said he taught so long that people were falling asleep and a poor man in the window fell out of the window. That's one of the stories in the book of Acts. And you think, there's a guy who's got a lot to say. When Paul left the Ephesian church, also in the book of Acts, he said to them, I, have, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. And he charges other followers and other teachers in the church to teach the whole counsel of God. He says, you want to do it all. on on uh in the great commission when jesus left his disciples he said teach them all i've commanded you so there are a lot of commands to be broad in what we want to think about in the church what it means for us to be followers of jesus what it means to be human and how we're called to live together but here paul reminds us that there is a list and that some things are more important than others he doesn't want. He doesn't want the people in Corinth to reduce their teaching to only the thing of most importance, right? He's not saying to the parents, "If you have your kids, you have everything." Well, there are other things to bring to when you're going out. But we want to have longer, more expansive lists. And that's why one of the that's one of the big reasons why, as a church, we are dedicated to the practice of moving through books of the bible old testament new testament letters history prophets we move through the different types of teaching and we force ourselves to move through parts of the bible that we might not automatically pick that's what we're doing most of the year 75 80 percent of the time but there are times of the church calendar where it's good for us it's wise for us to pause and to say let us focus on things of first importance let's make sure we give special attention to the things the bible itself says this is really big the passage we're looking at today is one in which paul says that he says verse 3 i delivered to you as of first importance when he was delivering things to the corinthians he says this is a matter of first importance you really want to have this and what does he tell us is of first importance he lists really two types of things He says that Christ died for our sins in accordance of the scriptures and that he was buried. The death and burial of Jesus. In a sense, the burial is just the the sort of capping event. Jesus not only died, but his death was so real and complete, they put him in the tomb. And he was there Friday, Saturday, Sunday morning. The Jewish people would count that as three days. But the second type of thing Paul mentions here is bound up together with it inseparably. He also delivered the good news of the resurrection. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas then to the twelve. Just as the death and the burial go together, so do the resurrection and the appearances. It's the capping event, the revelation that Jesus did not stay dead. Through the history of the church, these two things have been inextricably bound together and always recognized as the core of the message one of the earliest things christians would begin to say was something along the lines of christ has died christ has risen christ will come again in beginning in the second and third centuries uh, the church began to develop statements of faith that people would say perhaps as they were being baptized one of those uh, if we think came to be regarded as the Apostles' Creed. It was the teaching of the Apostles summarized in a form where people could remember what was really important, that Jesus died for us and that he was raised again. And after the sermon today, we'll read that ancient creed of the church. The church has always recognized that there are things of first importance. And yet in this passage, Paul also tells us that we are to be on guard. That we are people who are prone to forgetfulness. That though we may believe, he says in verse 2, there's a warning, a frightful warning, that it's possible for us to believe in vain. That we need to be people who are committed to holding fast that which is most important. Uh, Paul would know there are a lot of important things for us to hold on to, but he says if you lose this, you lose everything. So as we look at the passage today, we'll think about it in three ways, and, and hopefully with that sense of urgency, this reminder that we ought not to be people who believe in vain, but that we hold fast to that, which is of first importance. Now, uh, First of all, we'll look at the reason why uh, Paul sees this to be so central, and, and as we think of death and resurrection, our, our, our theme in this series is to really emphasize the aspect of the resurrection they are bound together but it's really that that half of what paul presented that we'll be focusing on most in this series Um, so first of all we'll see why it's so why the resurrection is so central Uh, secondly we'll see its historic importance in the church and third we'll return to these first two verses and think what our response should be Uh, so first of all why did paul regard this as being so important in verse three he says i delivered to you as of first importance what i also received and what paul's telling us there is that the message he was sharing was one he had also received he received from jesus but he also received from the other apostles Uh, paul learned things from the other apostles as well um, but he what he's telling us here is he didn't come up with his own list paul says my list is the same as that of the rest of the early church it's the same as the other apostles we didn't come up with it we received it it was given to us most immediately by Jesus, but then passed along from one to another. Paul received a list of beliefs, and, and some of them, he said, were of first importance. Uh, many scholars think that what he goes on to say here in verses 3 uh, through 5 is perhaps the form of the creed as he received it. it. It may also be that he's simply paraphrasing the types of things he received. But Paul goes on to tell us two things that we said are Necessarily bound together. That Christ died for our sins, verse 4, that he was buried. So uh, Paul understands that these things are necessarily linked together, that the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus together form the two halves of the gospel message. In the very first verse of the whole passage, Paul spoke of preaching the gospel. The word gospel means good news, it's a good news of something that happened. A victory that was won by God on our behalf. Paul then in this section, verse number 3, is telling us the content of the gospel. Two essential parts, that Jesus died for our sins and that Jesus was raised again on the third day. These are the two essential parts that we hold together. Now, the reason that they're so important to hold them together is that on its own, Visibly, from a human perspective, the death of Jesus wouldn't have been all that abnormal. We come to understand that it was of incredibly deep significance, a one-of-a- kind event. It was, after all, for our sins. But if you had been an observer to the death of Jesus, you might not have been able to see that. Sure, the gospel writers uh, recon- recognize some unusual things that happened around the death of Jesus, but by and large, A person being crucified outside the city on one of the main roads outside of Jerusalem was not in itself an unusual event. It was common practice for the Roman Empire. It was a visible display of law, order, and authority. It was reserved for the worst criminals, particularly for crimes against the state. The message was public, it was brutal, it was horrifying, and it was clear. Thus dies the enemy of Rome, and Rome had no shortage of enemies. We don't know how often crucifixions would have occurred, but we have reason to believe they would have been normal practice. In fact, on the day Jesus was being killed, there were two other people really unrelated to him being crucified at the same time. It might tell us that perhaps the general average would be three a day, or maybe there was a certain crucifixion day during the week where several would be lined up. We don't know. In and of itself, the crucifixion was a horrifying death, but not abnormal. When paired with the resurrection, though, we've come to understand its true meaning. We may ask the question as we consider the gospel message, how are we to know that Jesus died for us? The answer the apostles would have given is to say, the resurrection. We may ask the question, how do we know that Jesus was truly innocent, that he wasn't actually a revolutionary someone who was misguided the answer is the resurrection how do we know that jesus was really who he said he was the bread of life the son of god the the very presence of god among us the exact imprint of his glory how do we know that the answer is the resurrection because while death by crucifixion would not have been Abnormal resurrection was. Now, sure, there are times that people may have a heart attack, they may, in a sense, technically die, and they are brought back. What the Bible tells us about the resurrection is that Jesus wasn't just resuscitated, but that he went forward into the newness of life and the restoration of all things that God has promised at the end of time. In other words, from the biblical perspective, the uh, resurrection of Jesus was completely abnormal. It was the first of its kind in this order. When the, the apostles encountered Jesus, they didn't just meet a man who had come back from the dead, but he had gone through death itself. And he began to walk in the fullness of a new body. This is the witness of the apostles. Paul also reminds us that when this was happening, it was, though it was the first people had seen it, It was not the first they had heard of it. He emphasizes that both the death and the resurrection of Jesus were in accordance with the scriptures. When we think of the scriptures or the Bible, we think of Old Testament and New Testament. What we call the Old Testament or the Hebrew scriptures is about 80% of the Bible. It's the first half. Jesus only shows up in the 20% of the Bible called the New Testament. He only shows up directly as a figure. But Paul tells us here, as do the rest of the New Testament writers, that all of the scriptures beforehand were pointing forward to Jesus, that his death and his resurrection were planned by God from the beginning. The the resurrection wasn't, (laughs) say that again slowly, the resurrection wasn't God's plan B. It's not as if things got out of hand and he lost control of the mob and Jesus was accidentally killed and and God said, now a reboot. The death of Jesus was the plan. Jesus knew that himself. He knew that was the purpose for which he came, that he would come to give himself for our sins, that we could be forgiven. The resurrection was the sign and the clear evidence that Jesus really was a divine, divine son of God, righteous, without blemish, and death itself could not hold him. and Paul may have been thinking of many things in the Old Testament, but perhaps when he spoke of the death being in accordance with the scriptures, he may have thought particularly of Isaiah 53.5 that says, he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Regarding the resurrection, Paul may have thought of many things, but he may have thought as did many of the early apostles of Psalm 16. The psalm that peter read on the day of pentecost we heard it earlier in our service it reads you will not abandon my soul to the grave or to sheol or let your holy one see corruption jesus was the holy one whose body did not see corruption so first we recognize the way paul sees his message of first importance being bound with the witness of the church that which he received He sees the two parts of death and resurrection linked together, and he sees all of it in accordance with the scriptures, the plan that had been being developed all along as God revealed himself through the prophets. But secondly, Paul highlights here the way in which the resurrection of Jesus made such a lasting impact on the early church. It was not just that Jesus was raised, but he showed himself in his resurrection body. And the rest of verse 5 reads this way. He was raised from the dead and he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. The word Cephas is the old name for Peter. Peter who had denied Christ. And then perhaps at this point in verse 6 that Paul's now adding his own words. He, He may be expanding on this tradition that he received and now adding to it his reference to all the other resurrection appearances that he knows about. He speaks of the way Jesus had appeared to more than 500 people at one time, most of whom were still alive. Paul's saying, listen, there are other witnesses around. They saw him also, though some of them had already begun to die, and he uses this sort of euphemism. They've already fallen asleep. And he speaks of his appearance, the appearance of Jesus to James and the rest of the apostles, those beyond the 12, including James, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Paul here highlights the role of the apostles in the early church in their witness to the resurrection. If you read their early uh, speeches or sermons of the followers of Jesus, they often regarded themselves as witnesses to the resurrection. On Pentecost Sunday, when Peter preaches really the first uh, christian sermon after resurrection after the spirit is poured out he says jesus was raised up in accordance with scripture and we are witnesses now uh, it would be for these uh, followers of jesus and unlikely witness and a costly witness we go back to the moment in time uh, on the first easter morning uh, this moment in time in this little part of the world this uh, edge of the Roman Empire, where a uh, seemingly would-be religious leader named Jesus of Nazareth had been publicly killed. On that morning, nothing happening at that time from a human perspective would lead us to think that there would be a religious revolution that would change the world. As the followers of Jesus were either hiding or had fled, as, as some of his closest friends, a group of women, were trudging slowly on the Easter morning to the tomb to complete the process of burial. Nothing would have led us to expect that there would be such a vast change. The disciples had after all locked themselves in a room. They were afraid the same thing would happen to them that had happened to Jesus. Jesus had been betrayed by his close followers. Judas had betrayed him. Peter otherwise known as Cephas, the most vocal of the disciples, had publicly disowned him. The rest had either run away or hidden. The crowds had turned against him and called for his crucifixion. The religious leaders of his own people had plotted against him. The civil authorities of governing the realm in which he lived had overseen and directed his death. And at his tragic death, only a handful of his closest followers, including his own mother, we there by the cross as he died. But then, on Easter morning, Jesus appeared. And he changed everything. This is what Paul is saying here. He's saying that the basis, basis of our faith is that people like me, who didn't really see it coming, no matter what Jesus said, encountered Jesus raised from the dead and everything changed for us. The disciples were transformed from cowards into wildly successful church planners. The same followers who abandoned Jesus in his hour of need would begin to proclaim the gospel in the same city where Jesus was killed. Many of them would do it at the cost of their own life. How do we explain this transformation? Paul tells us they saw Jesus. He appeared to him. That's the repetition of the phrase. Then he appeared. Then he appeared. The risen Lord Jesus appeared. And they saw him. One of the, one of the followers of Jesus, Thomas, uh, touched him intentionally. He said, I won't believe. And Jesus demonstrated the reality of the resurrection. He, he ate things with them, he prepared them breakfast. He was real. It was the beginning of something new. Peter. Cephas who had abandoned him was restored I think that's perhaps why he was listed specifically in this statement he appeared to Jesus and Jesus restored them or think also of James the brother of Jesus we just got done studying through a book of the Bible a letter from James and uh, we said it's most likely that that was written by the brother of Jesus that's what the early church believed to be the case a man who during his life wasn't even a follower of Jesus Later, we find him to be one of the great leaders in the church. A man who would give his life, reportedly being thrown from the temple for his faithfulness to Jesus. How do we explain the change? Paul tells us. Jesus appeared to him. Or think of Paul himself. Paul was a zealous religious leader. and He, he saw this, the beginning of this group of Christians, this followers of Jesus. He saw a threat to the established religious order, and zealous for the traditions of his fathers, he set out to stamp it out. With threats and violence, he attacked the early church until on his road to Damascus, Jesus appeared to him. Paul was changed. His life did a 180. It was completely different. He suddenly had to factor in new information. This Jesus, whose followers he had been persecuting, appeared to paul and changed him paul factored in the new evidence of all and he said last of all as to one untimely born he appeared also to me i I am the least of the apostles paul says because i persecuted the church of god something happened in history that changed the course of the lives of so many of these people it was not a figment of their imagination or a mass hallucination You don't get 500 people to all hallucinate something at once. You don't get fearful followers to speak boldly, sealing their testimony in blood based on an imaginative whim. The early church was founded on the blood of these witnesses who testified even to death that they had encountered the risen Lord Jesus. Paul summarizes this revelation of Christ in verse 10 by, by the word grace. The normal course of the world had been interrupted and grace broke in. The appearance of Jesus changed everything. It meant that Jesus had been right all along. His death really was for us. Sin no longer controls us. Death and decay don't have the final word. The normal course of the world was interrupted and the grace of God broke in. In the resurrection of Jesus. Grace means unmerited favor. Blessing from God that you can't earn. Free forgiveness. New life. New hope. New future. Paul described it for himself this way. He says, by the grace of God I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. In these next coming weeks we're going to take this idea and just keep expanding it. Looking in other parts of the Bible places that show us the impact of the grace of God and the resurrection of Jesus on our lives in so many ways as we think about who we are now and who we will be in the future. But I want to end today, third and finally, by just returning to the beginning of the passage. Paul closes by saying his grace towards me is not in vain, but Paul began with a warning. He warns those listening to him. He says, unless you regard this as a matter of first importance, you could have believed in vain. Paul is raising the possibility that there could be members of the visible church who have affirmed things, perhaps in some sense believed things. They have begun to follow. They they have acknowledged to some extent the truth of these matters, and yet they lost hold of matters of first importance. Paul urges the church to be people who hold fast. He says, "Hold fast to this, unless you have believed in vain." Now, none of us are people who have witnessed the resurrection as Paul did. We don't see; we haven't seen the risen Lord Jesus. But the good news for us is the people in Corinth hadn't either. There's no reason to believe that any of these 500 witnesses of the resurrection were in the congregation of Corinth all the way. On the other part of the Roman Empire. But Paul says in verse 1 that they encountered Jesus as the gospel was preached to them. Now, this might not be the way you or I would design it. If we were coming up with a plan to reveal Jesus to people, we may just say, well, Jesus, keep on doing what you were doing. Show up, let people see your body, and then they'll believe. But God's plan in his wisdom is that we would encounter the risen Lord Jesus through the words of another human being. That it would be verified in the actions of their life. The words of the gospel are received as we hear them spoken to us by another person. And the life of the church, lived in love and unity and good works, testifies to the truthfulness as we adorn the profession and proclamation of the gospel. That's how the Corinthians came to faith. They heard the message and they believed. They believed the witnesses that told them, we saw Jesus. The ordinary course of the world is not as final as we think. Jesus was raised. Hope is real. Grace is possible. Paul calls these people in Corinth to the appropriate response. He tells them three things. He says that they should receive the message. He speaks to people who've already received it. The first response we have to the message of the gospel, the witnesses of Jesus is to receive it. We we hear it and we agree with it. And then Paul says the next thing we do is we stand in it. Finally, he tells us that we are people who called who are called to hold fast to it. The good news of the gospel is God did something for us we can't do on our own. We can't live a righteous life that is perfectly acceptable to God. We can't give ourselves for the sins of anyone else. But he does tell us here there's a human response that is called for. We are called to receive the message, to stand in it, and to hold fast to it. We are called, in other words, to make sure this continues to be of first priority in our lives. If we really believe it's true that Jesus was raised from the dead, I think we would all agree in a very practical, abstract way that that should be of first importance. If there was a man in history who was raised from the dead and who said his death was for your forgiveness and he moved on in fullness of life, never to die again, he was taken up into glory. If that is true, then it is the matter of first importance in our life. And all kinds of things follow for us if that is true. We've mentioned sort of referred to these already. If that's true, if that is really true, and that's of first importance for our life, then we have incredible hope, don't we? We're a people of hope. Because regardless of what's happening in the world around us in the Bible never instructs us to close our eyes to the darkness and ignore it but we have hope in the midst of it because Jesus was raised from the dead and there will be for all who follow him a resurrection into glory more on that in coming weeks it also means that we live in a world not fully explained merely by the natural powers around us The Bible tells us God made the world, he likes the world, he likes the order of the world, and most often he works through those natural processes to bless his people. He wants us to explore the created world, shape it and form it for good, but the Bible also tells us that God is present and active, that the supernatural is real. One of the biggest challenges I think that we find is we live in a world that is increasingly uh increasingly de-supernaturified some sociologists would say that we live in a world that is uh increasing the mystery is taken out of it and sometimes we're led to believe that all we see can be explained by all that we know and can observe now again christians affirm the goodness of the world and the study of it it's a wonderful thing to be a scientist or historian and to wrestle with God's world. But it warns us not to limit our view of reality to that. Your life right now is not merely the product of all the forces you can see, but there is a God who is present and active. He can be known and he is at work. Third and finally, this is a warning for us that while it's important that we examine ourselves. Think about our own faith. The real hope of the gospel lies external. Christianity is a faith that looks outside of itself. The things of first importance for me is to trust that Jesus did something for me. In my own life, my feelings can go up and down, sometimes within the matter of a single day. Uh, some days are good, some days are hard. Some days my own weakness seems so visibly present to me some days our prayers seem dynamic and other days they're feeble other days we can see God using us to encourage others and bring positive change in the world around us and other times we see that we do harm these things are not insignificant they're not unimportant they matter but what good news it is that Paul says there's something of first importance Something outside of you. Jesus died. He was raised from the dead. He is ruling and reigning in power. And the primary function of your faith is to look outward and put your hope in that. Friends, if we're honest, we recognize the many ways in which we can slip from this. Where other good things can supplant this. and we find that our, our hope, Our expectation is is fading. Perhaps it's evidence that that which is first importance has been pushed downward on the list. Other good things, legitimately good things, can begin to emerge and push it aside. As we move towards a season of Easter, would you join with me in prayer and in study and in the pursuit as we reflect on our lives that pursuit that would return the first things to their place of first importance. Let's close in prayer. Father, we pray simply that you would make us Easter people. People for whom the hope and the power and the stability of the resurrection would be our our guiding principle. Lord, we, we need to build on that, we know. We need to be faithful in all of our lives In all the places you call us but would you show us where the things of first importance have perhaps slipped where something else has emerged show us where we need to repent and release and trust you and you establish in our hearts a living hope that jesus the risen lord is ruling and reigning with power and that all glory belongs to him in his name we pray